Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I am C.B. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Marion O'Shea Wernicke about Out of Ireland. Most of us have at least a passing acquaintance with the Irish potato famine of 1848 and the country's fight for freedom from British domination, which consumed much of the 19th and 20th centuries. Marion Wernicke's novel reflects the long-term impact of the famine and tracks the emergence of the Fenians, later known as the Irish Republican Army and Sinn Féin, among other names. But her novel opens in a very different space and time. Barrett Street, St. Louis, Missouri, 1935. It's a dark February afternoon. Maggie's fingers are frozen as she reaches the front door of the big house on Barrett Street. Tall and slim, she looks more like a high school girl than she does an eighth grader at Holy Name Catholic School. In the foyer, she pulls off the two thin gloves. Glancing up, she notices her mother standing very still on the shadowy landing. Mom, what is it? Oh, Maggie, I didn't hear you come in. It's your grandmother. She's very bad today. Can you go in and see her for a minute? Sure, Mom. Maggie groans inside. She dreads entering that bedroom these days. It's hard seeing her beloved grandmother Eileen and friend, the one who's been her refuge in a house full of loud, growing brothers, as she lies there in bed with sunken eyes and hands grasping restlessly at the quilt, moaning in pain. And now, please join me in welcoming Marion O'Shea Wernicke. Hi, Marion. Thank you for talking with me today. Well, Carolyn, thank you for having me. It's it's a great pleasure to speak with someone who's read the book and wants to know things about it. So I'm delighted to be here. Thanks. Out of Ireland is not your first published book or even your first novel. Could you tell us a bit about yourself, about those earlier works, and how you made the shift to writing fiction? Certainly. I'll, I'll try to make my... Um, 
my uh, the short version. <laughs> but I uh, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, where part of the, this current novel is set in a large family, the oldest of seven children. Um, when I was 16, I we were Irish Catholics. I became a nun, or I entered the convent, much to my mother's disapproval, but my father kind of talked her into it, um, but I was quite young. And I was in the convent for 11 years, and during that time, I volunteered to serve in Lima, Peru, where we had a school. Um, and then after those years in Peru, I left the convent and went to New England to teach um, bilingual children, bilingual uh, Spanish children, Spanish-speaking children. And uh, a couple years later, met the man that I married, and uh, we went to Madrid for a year or so where he took a job and then came back to Pensacola and raised three children there. Uh, I taught for 25 years at the community college in Pensacola, Pensacola State College called now. And during that time, I had a sabbatical, and I had some plans for it, but all of a sudden I thought, I'm going to write the first draft of a novel I've had simmering in my mind, which I hadn't had time to work on between teaching and raising three kids. So that was the origin of my first novel, Toward That Which is Beautiful. And I wrote it. I had an agent early on. He couldn't sell it. I rewrote it. I worked on it on and off for almost 20 years, Carolyn. But anyway, uh, in between, I finally retired from teaching English at the college. And then I wrote my first, the novel wasn't published yet. I wrote a memoir about my father, Tom O'Shea. Um, and kind of did some digging in his past. He had been in an orphanage, and I didn't know much about that, and he had been in World War II. So after that was finished, I self-published that. Then I got more serious about the first novel, and that novel traces a runaway nun up in the Altiplano of Peru. So I was able to use my experience in Peru. It's not my story, but... um, uh, you know, I could I could craft her character out of what I knew, um, and then I published that with She Writes Press in 2020, and then I started right away on the next novel, which is based on the story, loosely based or inspired by the story of my great grandmother, who was an Irish immigrant. So that kind of brings us up to today. <laughs> Uh, yes, and what was it about your great-grandmother's story that um, made you want to bring it to the page as a novel? Well, I, I didn't know too much, but my mother had known her well. My mother, she lived, when she became a widow, this great-grandmother, lived with my mother's family. And my mother was the second youngest of eight children, and six of them were brothers. So she told me that stories about her grandmother. And she said, you know, she was her best friend. She was her protection against her big brothers. And and um, she told me the basic facts. Plus, I had two letters from her, this great-grandmother's two daughters, who was my grandmother and my grandmother's sister. And they were reminiscing about what their mother had told them about Ireland, that she was forced to marry an older widower when she was 16 years old. She didn't love him. He was bossy, domineering. Uh, at that, they, emig- they had a baby. They emigrated to the United States, and tragedy takes place. So I had this skeleton 
of the novel, but I thought I would like to imagine the inner life of this 16-year-old Irish girl, what that felt like. So I knew I didn't want to write a biography because I didn't know enough, but I certainly wanted to explore it in fiction where you can get inside the character's head. So that's what made that story very appealing to me. I, I felt such kinship with her, how, how brave she was, and wanted to explore that. Say you had the rough facts and um, your imagination, obviously. How do you go about fictionalizing the life of, of someone who actually lived? What did you do to make her uh, the heroine of a novel? Yeah, first of all, I had to do a lot of research. And since we're talking about historical fiction, you know, that would be part of the of the genre for sure. And so my husband and I took a trip to Bantry, Ireland, where she was from. And we walked around, we uh, explored the cemetery, the church, and we stayed. There's a beautiful big house called Bantry House, which is owned was owned from 1600 by the Earls of Bantry. And it's been passed down in this same family. But they've opened six... Um, um, hotel rooms. So, so six. There are six bedrooms for people to stay, like a B and B. And we did that. And as I'm wandering around this gorgeous, beautiful house owned by the Anglo-Irish, not the Irish Catholics. These were the descendants of the British. I thought this is where I'm going to have my character work. I don't know that my grandmother, great grandmother, did that, but this was perfect because she would probably have been a maid in the house because her people were living on the tenant as tenant farmers for the earl. So it's a question of, you know, doing that kind of deep research, what was happening in Ireland at the time. And then since they're going to be immigrants, I had to study what was the voyage over like, how much did it cost to go in steerage, what were those conditions, what kind of diseases did people get? You know, those were called coffin ships at one time. The with with loads of poor immigrants coming over without good hygiene. So the research was an important part. And then I could weave the story without bringing in too much history, but just enough to carry the story along. Um, and I didn't worry, you know, I didn't know much about her brother at all. I know she had brothers, but I, that character is totally imaginary. The priest in the story is imaginary. So... I wasn't sticking to facts at all, except in the main outline of her story. Let's turn now to the novel, uh, the center of your tale, uh, who is the the representation of your grandmother, but as we've established, not your grandmother, really, is Mary Eileen O'Donovan, uh, who's known as Eileen. Describe her for us as we first meet her at the age of 16. Well, when we meet her, she's up in a tree. She's a 16-year-old healthy girl, and she's watching a storm come, and it's kind of her, her private place. And her mother calls her down and for tea, and then her mother springs a bomb on her to tell her that they think it's time for her to be married off, that her oldest brother and the mother have decided because they're having financial troubles. The crops have not been good. The, the, this is not famine time. This is about 21 years after the famine. It's 1867. But she she is horrified. She's never walked out with any boys. She's kind of a dreamy, bookish girl. She's been educated by the Presentation Sisters up to eight, the 
age 12. But that's all. But she's a reader. She's reading. She's interested. And she's kind of romantic. She's getting, from novels, she's getting the idea of romantic love, not arranged marriages. So so that's that's our heroine, Eileen, at the beginning of the novel. And it's going to cover about five years of her life and her brother Michael's life. As you mentioned, she has two brothers and a mother, but her father died some years before the story began. What happened to him, and what can you tell us about her brothers and her relationship with them? Well, um, in the in the first chapter, I have to fill in that, that her father died, was found dead in the fields, of uh, apparently of a heart attack or something, when Eileen was only three. So she would not have had any memory of him. But her mother told her over and over the stories of her father's life. So she knew that her father had been raised um, by a single mother. His father had died, and he had helped his mother with the five younger children during famine times. So they had had a very harsh life. So you can imagine now he has his own little cottage granted to him by the Earl and has to pay some of the harvest to the Earl. But if the harvest isn't good, then that that's a problem. So Mamie, the mother, is raising her three children, her two sons and her daughter, as a single mother now. And she needs economic help. And here's this widower whose farm is right next to theirs. And if she gets one daughter off her hands, that's that's she'll still be near, but she won't have to support her. So it's an economic decision, but a, a rather cruel one. And then the brothers, Martin sides with the mother, and Michael, who is closer to Eileen, um, but he has his own issues too, which I guess we'll get into, uh, but he's her friend, and he encourages her to go talk to the parish priest, and so that brings in Father Hugh Gleason, who's another main character in the novel, who tries to help Eileen, but her mother is adamant about it. Her mother, uh, Mamie, is actually a very strong character, and Eileen is actually a pretty strong character, too. So it's maybe not so surprising that they have a conflicted relationship, especially since most 16-year-old girls have conflicted relationships with their mothers. Could you talk about that a little bit? Certainly. Um, Yes, Mamie comes across in the novel, and as I wrote it, I, I was a little harsh, I guess, in my portrayal. But she's one of these stoic women, you know, she's had to face tragedy. She's had to face losing her young husband when he was in his 30s and raise these children in very precarious times in Ireland. They're second-class citizens. They don't have any rights. But she's sort of of the school of keep calm and carry on. You know, you do what's expected of you. You put one foot at She's She's not demonstrative. Um Secretly, she probably prefers Michael, who's the charming brother, the second oldest boy. But um, she, she's not particularly demonstrative, but she does love her children very much, and she's worried about them. So she tries to reassure um, Eileen that that she was made to marry, and she grew to love her husband, and she would just hope that would happen for her, you know. But by all accounts, she's not going to give up. She's going to have to marry this guy. So, um, you know, and then 
well, what happens, of course, later in the novel, she she passes away herself, much to Eileen's sorrow. So she loves her mother very much, but she's furious at her at this point. You mentioned Father Gleason, the parish priest, and his influence on Eileen. Um, tell us a bit about him. He's quite a young man at this point in this story. Yes. You know, it's funny, Carolyn. I was thinking of the actor Brendan Gleason as I wrote his character, as I have him be kind of a big guy with a prize fighter's face. And I don't know if you remember, but Brendan Gleason has been in that Irish film, The Banshee of Inner Sharon, lately. So he was he was the actor I had in mind as I'm describing and I wanted Hugh Father Hugh to be a sympathetic character. Um I I am kind of tired of priests being portrayed either as horribly ho- sanctimonious and hypocritical or pedophiles, you know, there were and are a lot of good priests too who are sincere and helpful and Hugh becomes, Father Hugh becomes a real help to Eileen. He writes letters to her once she's gone. He's sympathetic to her. He feels guilty that he wasn't able to stop the marriage because, according to the rules of the Catholic Church, you're never to be forced into a marriage. And he knew that she was being forced, but he he had to go along with it, he felt. But he very much regrets this. And he becomes, I get he becomes a main character in a sense because I get inside his head also. The story is told from the point of view of Eileen, of Michael, and of Father Hugh Gleason. But I became fond of him in the book, and and so I I was sympathetic. (laughs) Or he, he became a sympathetic character, I should say. This may seem like it's coming out of left field, but did your experience uh, in the convent inform your portrayal of Father Gleason? Did it make you more sympathetic to him? Yes, I think I understood how human priests are. You know, they're they're just people. Just because they're ordained doesn't make them saints or anything. And so they're grouchy priests and, and loving, compassionate priests and... Um, business-like priest, and and I wanted, particularly for Eileen, to have this kind of character. And to, and he he looks at her, and he realizes how hard a choice celibacy is, because she's a beautiful young woman. She's married now, and, you know, he has all the same feelings that, that any man would have. Uh, but he's faithful to his vows, and, and he's a good counselor to Eileen. So I, I'm sure, from knowing a lot of priests, I, I had a certain sympathy, yes. I, when we meet her at the beginning of the novel, before her marriage, Eileen is working part-time at the big house, and now I know where that comes from, because it's the B&B where you stayed. Um, but at that time, it's sort of the central um, structure of, of the village, owned by the local gentry. And uh, Eileen is... I mean, she's sorry to give away, to, to leave it, because it has a library, and she, that's a place where she can get books. But as far as the job is concerned, well, I guess it has food, too, right? She gets food. Um, I suppose. And remember, there's a scene where Michael comes into the kitchen, and he hasn't had much breakfast, and he, Mrs. O'Hanlon, the cook, is cutting up a ham, and and he's looking kind of at it longingly, and she cuts a big chunk off and tells him to hide it in his shirt and take it home. <laughs> so, yes, I think that was probably a place where she could get food, yes. 
But what, in general, what should we understand about the place of, of these Anglo-Irish in the, in the society that Eileen is part of? Yes. You know, the history of Ireland is extremely tragic because from the 1500s on, even under Queen Elizabeth, the British had their eye on Ireland as a possession, just like they did in Scotland and on Wales. And so the Irish, who would not convert to the Anglican religion, which was the religion of Queen Elizabeth, you know, once her father had parted from the Catholic Church, they were second-class citizens, and there were very harsh penal laws passed in the late 1700s. If you were Irish Catholic, you could not vote for Parliament. You could not go to university. You could not really own land in your own name. So what happened is the British gave big tracts of land to people in Ireland who were loyal to them, who were who were Protestant. And so they came to own it, it would be like the British were in the United States, too. Uh, we, we fought against the British to get them out of our country. Well, uh, this, is, this is comparable to what's happening in England. So these grand estates were built, and later, after the time of this novel, but many of those are going to be burned down when the Irish revolt in the 1920s. 230, I think, great houses were burned to the ground in retaliation, because the Irish people felt this was our land. We had a culture. We had a language. That's another thing. The Irish Catholics were not allowed to speak or study Gaelic anymore, which is their own language. So um, those conditions, and some some landlords were good, as I understand, the Earls of Bantry were quite good, and during famine, they didn't fire anybody. Everybody had still had a job on the estate and had food, so but some were not. Um, and if people couldn't pay rent, they would order people to cut down, I mean, the, the troops to burn their house down rather than have them move back in. So it's a rather tragic history. But um, there are still many, many of these big, beautiful houses. It is a tragic history, um, and it it's interesting to see it play, play out in this novel because it's between sort of the bookends that we all know about, the Irish potato famine on one side, and then the real ramping up of the, the freedom movement um, that comes... Um, I mean, it has numerous rebellions, but the, the 1916 Easter Rebellion is probably the one that's best known. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's also useful to know what characters want. Um, and Eileen really, it's not just that she doesn't want to marry this particular, for a 16-year-old, very old guy, right? He's 40 or something like that, which is, you know, he might as well be 102. Um but she, um, but what she wants is actually not to marry at all at first, but to become a teacher. Where does that ambition come from? Well, I think she probably would like to marry, but not yet. You know, she she hasn't even, as she said, walked out with anyone. But I think because she loves books and she knows that her parent, her mother, and the family need money, so if she could become a teacher then she could help the family without having to get married. So uh, at one point, um, Father Hugh, when she goes to confession to him and 
tells him what her mother is planning for her, he says, well, maybe you could become a nun. And she said, oh, no, you know, I I don't think I, I'm made for that, you know. And she, she wants human love. She's read about it in books, and she wants to experience it. But she also needs to have a way to help her parents or her mother. So I think by by becoming a teacher, she would have a small salary, perhaps, and could help out. That makes sense. Thanks for clarifying that. Nonetheless, she does end up married to John Sullivan, uh, the farmer we've been talking around more than anything else. Tell us about him as an independent character that is uh, independent of Eileen's view of him is what I'm going for. Right. Well, he's a widower, and his wife has died, and his little child. So he's lost you know, his kind of his reason for living. And he he evidently has started to drink. And at one time, which wouldn't be unusual, but um, to to a great degree started to drink. And at one time, Michael says, it's rumored that he used to beat his wife. So it, he doesn't sound to Eileen's ears like a promising uh, husband at all. And he comes courting, he comes to the house and has tea, and and he's very quiet. He's not a talker like her brother. He's not charming. He's not at ease. He's awkward. He's a farmer. And when he finally kisses Eileen, he just grabs her and kisses her. I mean, there's no working up to it or anything. So, But later in the novel, once they have a child together, I found him, or I started thinking of him more sympathetically because he's very happy to have her and this child. She doesn't love him, but she tries to be a good wife in spite of the fact that she's not one bit in love with him. But he's good to their child, and it it seems for a while, right before they emigrate to the States, that the marriage has a chance, you know, to become happier. Um, But then events will take place later, as, as you see in the novel. But I I found him, or I made him, I suppose, a little more sympathetic than I originally had planned. I didn't make him a cruel, abusive husband, except in the fact that she isn't in love with him. But that's not his fault in a way. (laughs) So it's funny how you get get more sympathetic as you write. You know, I don't want to judge my characters. I just want to show them. And he's not an evil man. He's just not the right man for her, basically. He's not an evil man. No, he's... um. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
I mean, he's ex- he's an example of a certain type of man who's not comfortable with emotion and not comfortable with talking and, frankly, not comfortable with women, except <laughs> as the mother. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> right. Um, and it's a pretty rough life she has. I mean, we because of the way that um, history has worked, you know, we know most about the, the aristocracy, but if you think about what it was like to be a day-to-day wife in a place like 19th century Ireland, where, I mean, she spends hours every day just cleaning the house and cooking and sewing yeah, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, she's got a lunch, mm-hmm. right? That's yeah, she's got a full-time job. Even before the baby arrives, and then, of course, then it's you know, twice as much. Let's get back to Michael. Uh, he is the family's link to the other side of the burgeoning political rebellion in Ireland. How does he become involved with the Fenians, and how does that lead to his leaving for the United States? Well, the character of Michael was, I found, really a, a lot of fun to write because I get him in trouble. And, and so there has to be some trouble, and there is plenty of trouble, but... Uh, I found him, uh, I made him a very charming, winning guy, handsome, a good talker, exact opposite of John Sullivan, whom Eileen marries. But he is extremely frustrated as a young man in Ireland because he always feels that second-class citizenship. He's attracted to Lady Caroline, who is the daughter at the big house, but he knows it's ridiculous because she is so far above him in in. The class society that is prevalent, uh, there'd be no way. And so he's frustrated, and I think that drives him to the Irish Republican Brotherhood. They need to get the British out. That's the only way he could feel like he was really a part um, in an independent country. So he's he's driven, and right before the novel opens, he's taken part in an action that actually did happen in Cork, where some um, Irish Republican Brotherhood men attacked a British barracks near Cork. Uh, however, it was very quickly put down by the British, and it was humiliating. They were sent scattering, but that gave him a taste for revolution and for then joining the Irish Republican Brotherhood. When he actually goes to the meetings, he's kind of horrified because um, this, the guy, that the IRB officer who comes and administers the oath to them, it's, by the way, it's an illegal organization, and it's, the British have outlawed it, the Catholic Church has condemned it, although Father Hugh is somewhat sympathetic to the Finians, but... Michael, his rebellious, impetuous nature is what drives him to join the Irish Republican Brotherhood, even though it's a dangerous game that he's playing. And he's going to continue playing it when he emigrates to the United States. Yes, I was actually a little surprised to learn that the Irish community in New York and other U.S. cities, including St. Louis, where your family ends up, was so actively supportive of the Fenians' plans. But i now as I'm listening to you talk, I'm wondering if part of it is because so many of them had been sympathetic before they left. Uh, absolutely. The, the reason they left was there was no opportunity for freedom and for, you know, advancement for them. So 
That's right. And there was even an organization, a formal organization called Clan na Gael, and John Devoy, who had been a prisoner of the British in Ireland, came to the States to work the people up in the state, the Irish communities. New York, Boston had huge Irish community, Chicago, St. Louis, and they would raise money. They were collecting money. And the interesting thing, too, in St. Louis and in other cities like Chicago, Mayor Daley was an example of that. He was an Irish-American who rose to great political power. So as they were working to raise money, often by illegal means, we have to say, as Michael gets involved in when he gets to St. Louis, um, they're raising money for the cause. And so they justify the crimes that they're committing but they're also aiming for political power in the United States. And, of course, that didn't happen till JFK got elected. <laughs> so his father, JFK's parents on both sides, um, his mother's father had been mayor of, um, of Boston. So the Irish rose, but at first they were not welcomed. There were signs in stores, no Irish need apply, because there were thousands and thousands of Irish people coming during the famine. And these were the poorest of the poor, uneducated, and they were seen as dirty and, and not not wanting, people didn't want them as maids in their house in the beginning. So they were fighting kind of like the Italians did. The Italians got together and organized the mafia, you know, to get ahead in in the States. And the Irish had their gang. St. Louis had... I was very surprised in doing my research because I never heard my father talk about gangs. He was born in 1913, and the gangs were still active in the 20s and 30s, so uh, I never heard any of those stories. So it it shocked me also um, to learn that. But anyway, it became a convenient thing to have Michael get involved in. It's not a spoiler to say that Eileen comes to the United States. I mean, we've mentioned it, and she, we know she's based on your great-grandmother. And that she, So um, is there anything you want to tell us about her reasons or John's reasons for leaving or the voyage over or their early experience in America, or is that too far into the novel? No, that's okay. Um, I, I, you know, a, a, some tragedy happened, so I don't want to give that away yet, but... But um, I think, you know, they were their crops were failing a couple of years in a row. And I think Eileen wanted, she was restless and thought they thought by moving to the States. And then Michael escaped to the States, first to England and then to the States. So that becomes like the dream. Maybe if, if they could, they could make a new start there and, and perhaps get a farm. So... So since Michael's there, she she feels this drawing. Her mother has passed away. Her brother Martin has inherited their house. So, you know, there there would be another kind of life in the States. And at first it seems quite promising. Um, but tragedy happens, as, as it does so often in life, and then she ends up in St. Louis with her brother, and that's where my great-grandmother ended up. And I've, my great-grandmother lived in New England for a while and worked in a mill, and so I have Eileen doing that. Then she, when she came to St. Louis, her brother was there. Um, and then 
she's going to meet somebody else because something has happened to her husband. So anyway, I don't want to get too too detailed here, but the St. Louis part is very much based on my great-grandmother. And of course, I have no idea what she really thought, but uh, she survived. She, she thrived and um, she will, she will be the, the antecedent or the ancestor of a whole bunch of uh, people. There are at least, I have six first cousins <laughs> who are all waiting to read this novel because I'm writing about their great-grandmother too and their families and their children. So um, that's, that, that part of the novel is more heavily based on what I do know about Eileen. Uh, or she was Ellen. In real life, she was Ellen Hickey Sullivan Jewett, but I call her Eileen in the novel. What would you like people to take away from out of Ireland? You know, we're living in a time when immigration is a huge problem right now, and there's a whole um, group of very, to me, hard-hearted people that want us to build walls and turn them away, and, and yet all of our people, unless we're Native American, all of our people, our ancestors, came here from other countries seeking a better life. And how have we become so unsympathetic to these same people at our southern border who are trying to come in escaping crime and escaping poverty and uh, degradation, lack of human rights, when, you know, that's what America was built on. It was built on immigrants. So I wish that maybe it would help people to think, well, I wonder how my family came and what they had to go through and give up and and maybe soften the hearts of people that are so against immigration. So the problems aren't solved yet, and yet we have a huge country. We can use this new labor. This infuses new life into our country when we have immigrants. So that's really one, one thing I would like people to do is think about their own backgrounds and how hard their families, how many sacrifices they made to come to this country. This book has just come out really in the last two days, so I congratulate you first off. Um, Are you already working on something new? Um, Not another novel, but I, I think I want to go back to poetry. I used to write poetry when I was teaching and working because it wasn't as hard you know, you could work on a little poem for a long time. <laughs> it wasn't like a novel. But I have an idea of going through old photographs and pulling photographs and writing. I don't want to write a memoir about my life, but I think I would like to do a book of poetry based on on the past and, and use photographs, like a one-page photograph and one-page the poem. So that's that's at the back of my mind. I haven't begun it yet, but... That's my plan. Well, I wish you all success, and thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Marion. Carolyn, thank you so much for having me and make, making me think about these things. I really appreciate the interview. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Marion O'Shea Wernicke about Out of Ireland. Find out more about her at marianoshaywernicke.com. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at New Books Network. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry.
Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.